Drugs. Rights. Quality of life. Recovery. Harm reduction. Advocacy. Policy. Treatment. Stigma. Drugs Uncut. The Scottish Drugs Forum Podcast. Hi there and welcome to Drugs Uncut, the Scottish Drugs Forum podcast which is an informed yet informal space for conversation around drug related issues in Scotland. So welcome along, this is our third podcast episode and it seems to have gone pretty well so far. If you missed the last month's episode where we talked about the Scottish Government's Drug Death Task Force with Professor Katrina Matheson, then go back, have a little listen to that. We also heard from our esteemed colleague, Kirsten Horsborough, who's next to me. Uh, Kirsten is the lead of the National Loxone Programme and she talked us through some of the recommendations she made to the group as well. Uh, so also joining us today is Austin Smith uh, and my name is Andy Coffey. I am comms officer here at SDF. So this month we've got another interesting topic which is of particular relevance to us in Scotland right now, which is the recent opening of the Enhanced Drug Treatment Service in Glasgow. Now that service uh, otherwise might be known as Heroin Assisted Treatment. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that now guys. Uh, Austin, can you let us know a little bit about Heroin Assisted Treatment where it's come from and, uh, and why it's important to Glasgow right now. Yeah, well, it's heroin-assisted treatment is kind of misnamed, I, I feel, but basically what it is is prescribing diamorphine or heroin to people. And in terms of the, the regime, this is normally now supervised. So it's the supervised self-administration of pharmaceutical-grade diamorphine or heroin. Um, and the service wraps other stuff around that but that that's the key feature of it that instead of people using street heroin that's replaced with a pharmaceutical equivalent yeah and i, I think sometimes the perception that people get of heroin assisted treatment is that people are going in and they're getting all this heroin and they're really intoxicated but it's quite different from that um, people are on doses that are um meet their needs people generally tend to come into a service um, self-administer by injection generally their heroin, diamorphine um, and then feel fine and leave the service so it's you know all these kind of uh, his this hysteria that's often driven around this type of service is unfounded um, and I think that's part of the problem when people don't understand how the service like that operates that all these myths start coming out about it. But it's very much just a treatment service. Um, it shouldn't be seen as something controversial. It's just a, another treatment option for people. Yeah, so I mean, I've spoken about this before, about people being NHS patients. So the way they've uh, rationed this, if you like, or the, uh, the way it, it works is, is for people who've been failed by other treatments. So that's what would happen in normal prescribing practice. There would be a kind of default a medication that people would be given unless there was any other indication that they shouldn't and then if that didn't work for them or they'd unfortunate side effects or they weren't progressing in that treatment then they would be offered an alternative and so this just offers another alternative from methadone and buprenorphine. And it's not exactly uh, a brand new, it's new to Glasgow right now but obviously in the UK has its history with um, well, heroin assisted treatment um, but also it's used elsewhere within Europe as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to distinguish between the two things. So there is heroin-assisted treatment, as we understand it now in Glasgow, has been delivered in Glasgow and elsewhere in the UK now, um, that's part of a, a kind of treatment regime that's modelled on something that's, you know, happening elsewhere in Europe and so on, and was trialled, maybe we'll talk about that in the riot trials and so on, in the UK. But there's the old British system, which was always about uh, prescribing, substitute prescribing, but prescribing as close as you could to the drug. So whatever people were dependent on, you were just uh, prescribing that. Um, and it, 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 was, it wasn't a witnessed or a supervised self-administration of it. People just took the drug away. But that's, that was a British system that existed from the 20s through right through the 1960s. And involved a very small number of people. I mean, there are benefits to that system, which we could maybe talk about another time. But um, I think heroin-assisted treatment is really something that's quite different from that. Uh, it's much more of a kind of medical intervention than simply prescribing people what they yeah. appear to need. So we'd, uh, yesterday we'd had a bit of discussion about this and about that history back to the 20s. And then I went away last night and did a bit of reading, uh, a bit more reading about it because I didn't really um, have a clear picture of what that looked like in my head. And I think one of the things that I was interested in was how it was treated back then. So there was none of this kind of moral um, judgment about 
heroin use um, and it was very much seen as like uh, well here's the treatment that we could offer to people who are using heroin and that's that's quite different now like why do you think that that's changed so much over the years and why is it now that we don't have so much heroin prescribing across uh, the UK in particular? Well there's a long and interesting history to that and the short version of it is that it goes back to 1924 the health minister was John Wheatley the ILP a, a member of parliament for Springburn in Glasgow who commissioned uh, Humphrey Rolleston the Rolleston uh, Committee to report on opiate dependency and how that was to be dealt with. And this was as a, a result of uh, an increase, a, a small increase by today's standards uh, in people, the number of people who had opiate dependency after the First World War. And that report came out in 26 and reported to the then Health Minister, who was Neville Chamberlain, who was later the Prime Minister of the UK. And the, the committee it took a very medical, as you say, a kind of non-moralistic view that people who were dependent for whatever reason on uh, uh, opiates should be prescribed opiates. And most of them would have been uh, dependent originally through prescription. Uh, before and during the First World War, it was possible just to go into Harrods and buy a heroin kit and send it to your son who was fighting in the front. Um, so th th there was a tightening of that availability. People were prescribed, some people were doctors who were self-prescribing, and others there was a kind of bohemian element to that, and it was all focused around London and involved a few hundred people rather than the number of people we're talking about today. And so that system uh, lasted all the way through to the 60s when there was an increase in the numbers, but again, you know, we were still under a thousand people uh, being prescribed. Uh, they were the vast majority of them in London. They were using a couple of chemist shops who are, which are still there, Boots and Piccadilly, if you want to go and visit it. And uh, I can't remember what it's called. John Bell and Croydon, which is in Wigmore Street in Marlebone, which is a, a very nice pharmacist, which is still there. Um, and they, they would uh, dispense uh, pills, very small pills that made up a, a grain of, uh, of uh, heroin. And that practice fell into disrepute during the 70s because of two, and I think this is important, two doctors so there was uh, Lady Franco, who was a, a psychiatrist who was very loose in a prescribing practice, um, but prescribed to people who were dependent and didn't ask for any money. So it wasn't, it wasn't that she was corrupted in that way. And she uh, prescribed to people who were being prescribed by other doctors. So people got an oversupply and then provided it uh, as a supply in a black market because there was no black market at that time, almost no black market uh, in these kind of drugs. And then, um, and one of her patients was Alex Trokey, he was a Glaswegian, who originally grew up in Bank Street in the West End of Glasgow. And he uh, was part of a kind of bohemian group who, get, who raised money that way. And then, uh, more kind of tragically, there was a, a doctor who, uh, John Petro, John was uh, a doctor who was kind of down in his luck and bankrupt. And he um, prescribed for cash. And he didn't have any premises. He would sit in coffee shops and in bars and prescribe to people who would come in and meet him. And so he became, you know, the equivalent of a drug dealer, and that became a big kind of tabloid sensation. And so after that, and in the light of the UN Convention in '61 and American pressure, we had what led to the 1971 Act and a whole clamp down and all that. And what happened was all of those people, those few hundred people that were dependent, were then forced into a black market, which was met by the Chinese triads in Soho, and we imported illegally uh, Chinese uh, opium and, and heroin, and that became in the 70s and then most especially in the 80s, what we know now is a large number of people involved in a black market and involved in a kind of drug scene uh, where people hang about together and it's very much part of a kind of lifestyle if you, yeah. if you like. And it was during some of that earlier work wasn't it where they tightened up who was able to prescribe opiates or dimorphine yep. in particular and now and was it that then that led to this situation that we have now where um, we have a situation in the UK where you have to apply for a yep. License. So the Home Office licensing came in the 60s and was introduced by the Wilson government. The Wilson government clamped down on these doctors, uh, some of whom weren't involved in any kind of malpractice, 
um, and made life difficult for them to the point where they just stopped prescribing. And they promised that we, the government would open treatment centres. The treatment centres never arrived. The Home Office licensing was enough to scare off people from getting experimenting with uh, prescribing and see how that would work. So there was almost no prescribing, except for in a kind of elite Harley Street kind of way in which some of our more famous rock stars and so on were prescribed heroin, but it wasn't open to the general public. Yeah. And we mentioned earlier as well that there's been a few trials, so there's been um, most relevant to, to us in the UK, there was the one that was led by Professor Sir John Strang, the riot trial, which is randomised injectable opioid treatment trial. Um, and the results for that were really positive. And then the majority of the work and the, the uh, learning that we've done from here was the work that was in Switzerland as well. And we've had obviously um, inputs from Dr. Tilo Beck from Switzerland. I've actually been over and visited one of the heroin assisted treatment centres in uh, Bern in Switzerland. And this, is, this subject has been researched so much and the evidence for it is overwhelming. And the European Monitoring Centre on Drugs and Drugs Addiction produced various reports. Um, and the one that they produced on heroin-assisted treatment talked about it uh, leading to substantially improved health and well-being of participants, major reductions in their continued use of illicit heroin, major disengagement from criminal activities, so things like acquisitive crime uh, in order to fund their drug use, and marked improvements in social functioning, so like stable housing, employment rates and stuff. So, and, and as if that all wasn't enough, it's also cost effective, uh, the treatment as well. So for me, Glasgow made the proposal based on the awful situation of the HIV outbreak here. But heroin assisted treatment is something that should be an option for people in every area of Scotland and in the UK. Um, so it's just about choice for me and about having those available choices. Like, we, do, you know, the choices are very limited for people who have opioid dependency. Um, so, yeah, things like uh, prescribing diamorphine should just be seen as another treatment option that would be specifically appropriate for people who had, um, like you were talking about, Austin, for whom other treatments had failed them. And so it's being delivered in Glasgow now, um, but also it's being delivered in Middlesbrough. So it started in Middlesbrough on October the 14th, and, uh, and we were quite fortunate to have Danny Ahmed, uh, who is one of the clinical um, men mental health nurse prescribers and you caught up with Danny before our conference. Yeah, so we took the opportunity to grab Danny so I had actually sent him an intriguing email just a few days before basically saying interesting proposal which you know sparked his interest and he's like what is it you want me to do and I was like oh it's, it's maybe not that exciting but yeah. we do want to speak to you for our podcast so he was totally up for that and yeah we caught up with him just before the conference started. Great and so we can listen to that now. Danny, welcome to Scottish Drugs Forum podcast, Drugs Uncut. Thanks Great for to have me. you here in Thank Scotland. Um, so I was thinking back just before we came over to meet today about how we actually met, and I'm sure we met through Twitter. It was, yeah, it was through Twitter. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I was starting to explore how we could improve our practice, really, and came across your um, Twitter account, and, and we started communicating. Uh, then you came down to visit us, um, which was really helpful and kind of really started some of the path that we're on in terms of a health focused approach really to, to substance use treatment. Great, no, that was good and it was great to come down to Middlesbrough and meet with you and hear about some of the work that you're doing. Um, and I think we're going to hear about some of that today. So you're here for the Scottish Drugs Forum conference, uh -huh. um, which is on opioid substitution therapy. So what is your talk going to be about today? So I'm, I'm kind of sharing some of the work that we do at Foundations, which, as, as I mentioned, we, we have a harm reduction health focused approach and we try and make all of our services as barrier free as possible. Um, so I'll be kind of sharing how we do that, really, and some of the approach that we take. So that means that we effectively have uh, no wait times for treatment. It's rapid access. You turn up on the day, you get seen, you'll get a prescription um, if you require it within an hour. So, um, you know, that's a, a fantastic way to, um, to start that treatment journey. I'll be talking about the culture that we have in foundations, which is a, a kind of I'm OK, you're OK culture, a real partnership approach with patients. So we try not to, to do to patients. We try to work in collaboration. I'll be mentioning around um, opiate substitute therapy and the importance of optimised dosing, something that's very important to us at, at foundations 
because it doesn't make sense to us that um, we get people into treatment and then we hear lots of stories about how the treatment actually isn't effective because people aren't given the right dose at the right time. Um, I'll be mentioning about the kind of moral values that we stick to things like opiate substitute treatment that just doesn't happen in any other area of medicine. We've also, um, I'm really pleased to say, started our heroin assisted treatment program. So I'll be, I'll be touching on that and some of the, some of the work that we've been um, doing and how that started. Um, and, and I'll also be mentioning our work around naloxone, which is, I know is a topic that uh, is very close to yeah. you. And, and how we've taken some of the peer work that I've learned about from Scotland and developed that in Middlesbrough so that we've now got a peer naloxone programme, I think, which is the first in England, um, mirroring what, what you guys have been doing yeah. here in oh, Scotland. That's brilliant. And it's also relevant to what's happening and the discussions that are taking place in Scotland just now. So there's been a lot of emphasis on OST and that OST needs to be optimised and certainly something that we have been advocating for for a long time is about this same day access to treatment. So I'm sure we could sit and chat about all these subjects and have you here on this podcast for about five hours. <laughs> um, but I want to specifically focus on the heroin assisted treatment element sure. of what you're doing. So. Um, so we're hoping to speak to, um, or we will be speaking to somebody from Glasgow about their programme yes. as well that they're going to introduce, but you've started already. Yes. So yes. I've got a few questions just about your journey towards that. Um, so firstly, I guess, why did you, or how did you identify that there was a need to have heroin assisted treatment in your service? Well, I think there's a need everywhere because um, heroin assisted treatment is effectively a second line intervention. So. We know that five to 10% of people who are offered opiate substitute treatment will fail to benefit in any other area of medicine. Um, if you fail to benefit from a frontline treatment, there is a second line intervention. That has been around for many years as heroin assisted treatment in the substance use field. So we were keen that this is the evidence, this is clear that this works. We have people who fail to benefit from treatment. This, it needs to happen for us in our area. But there's, although Middlesbrough's got its problems and has got one of the highest rates of drug-related deaths in the UK, um, which means we're, we're a you know, key starting point for something like heroin-assisted treatment, I don't think that it's an intervention that should be seen as special. I think it's an intervention that should be um, available in any town, city um, within the UK. It yeah. should be normalised. Just normalised as Absolutely. an option for yeah. people, for sure. So what was the, how did you start the process then? What were the first sort of things that you needed to do when you decided, right, we're going to go ahead with this? How did you get started? So we, we attempted this 20 years ago um, and we got nowhere fast. Um, Effectively because uh, in order to um, acquire the licenses for, for prescribing uh, dimorphine, mm -hmm. you need to be a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychiatrist. Um, we're a GP practice, so we're not embedded in psychiatry. So we got stuck at that very early, early point. Um, so fast forward many, many years on, um, we, we, I started to talk with the public health team about what would be um, an impact in Middlesbrough. What would make a difference? What could we do in terms of... Um, you know, improving the treatment um, options that we have available. The public health team um, gave me the permission really and, and, and the backing to go and explore this and see if, if we could get this to Middlesbrough. Um, so that was a key starting point to have the backing of, of public health. Um, that led me to kind of dive into the research, reacquaint myself with the information that's already out there, the trials that we've had in the UK. I then started to understand that probably needed to understand how these work practically. So I was very lucky to visit clinics in um, Switzerland, in Geneva, Basel, and also to spend some time at Crosstown Clinic in Vancouver, uh, which um, I spent a week there um, shadowing the team. And, and well, it felt like I ended up working there really because I did the shifts. I worked um, as best I could in terms of supporting the team, but learned a, a great deal in terms of the practicalities of, of running a heroin assisted treatment program. The next big hurdle for us was, um, as it is in, in most areas, is we have a shrinking budget. Um, so we're asking to put what is an expensive intervention in place in a budget that's shrinking. So I needed to find funding. Um, so I approached the Police and Crime Commissioner's Office, which is, uh, I think it works differently in, in Scotland, um, but in, in, in England, um, there is a, an office, a, an elected office that um, manages the budget effectively for the police forces and, and um, managing crime um, effectively. So I approached them with the evidence um, and the evidence that heroin assisted treatment does 
and would reduce um, crime within the local area. They, um, they understood that, they heard the evidence and they got right behind it. Um, that then led to um, a partnership with um, probation, the PCC and public health who all put funds in um, to support the, the project starting um, this year. And am I right in thinking that it's from the proceeds of crime? Um, some of the funding? Yeah, so some of it may be, but they're yeah. certainly pushing now. So I know Barry Coppinger, who is the PCC in, in Middlesbrough, uh, Cleveland, is working tirelessly really to um, increase the level of proceeds of crime that come back to local forces yeah. and direct that specifically into heroin-assisted treatment. Because it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because obviously that's how um, the injecting centre in Sydney operates through ah, okay. um, funds for the proceeds of crime. Mm. And I remember when I um, went over there to visit, when I came back from my Winston Churchill Memorial Trust Fellowship, um, that was one of the recommendations that I'd put in my report okay. at the end of it, that that mm. should be considered for funding these types of services. But uh, lo and behold, we'll not go into where we're at uh, at the <laughs> yeah. moment with that. Um, but yeah, so it's an interesting uh, stream. So anyway, so you got all that sorted, the funding um, and everything in place. What was next? So what was next is uh, we got the funding for 15 people. Um, so it's not enough. Um, it's not enough people, but it's a start. And we got that funding for, for 12 months. So then we had to decide who were the 15 people. Um, you know, the evidence is that 5 to 10% of your treatment population would be suitable for an intervention like heroin-assisted treatment. We've got about 1,000 people in treatment, so roughly 100 people might be suitable. Um, so 15 is, is nowhere near 100. Yeah. So we worked with, um, with agencies to start to understand, you know, how could we get this, um, this number down, really. So we worked with our health colleagues. Um, we looked at, at, at our information around who is um, failing to benefit from treatment, who's continuing to use substances. Um, we worked with police and probation in terms of who are high crime causes, who's continuing to commit crime to fund their, um, their failure to benefit in treatment. Lo and behold, when you put that list together, you get the same name. So that helped us to start to focus on, so who's, who's committing the most crime? Who is the poorliest? Who is really um, struggling to engage with, a, with our substance use services? Mm -hmm. And that we, so we, you're almost prioritizing the high priority and then the high prioritizing the high priority. Very difficult to get down, but we've got that number down. It's a, it's a fluid list because People's circumstances change, so we've kind of looked at this in March, then we looked at it in June, and then we looked at it when we were, were ready to start. And the list fluctuates because some people um, end up in um, prison, other people um, drop out of treatment, other people sadly have passed away and the, the programme hasn't come quick enough. Um, but we've got to a point of knowing a, a, a list of people that we can um, approach um, when we're in a position to increase the numbers in the programme. Yeah. And how, so how many have you started with? Because you've just started in the last month or so. Yeah, we started right? in the last two weeks, two, two weeks, weeks. Yeah, yeah so it's really two. fresh. Um, we started with four individuals. Okay. So we're working in kind of groups of four. Um, so we've got our first group of four, then we'll add another group of four when, we're, when they're settled and we've learned practically mm -hmm. and kind of got some of the teething troubles out of the way. Um, they've done really, really well. Um, they're settling down, so um, I'm going to share some pictures today at the conference of, of people post using the dimorphine and um, you've got a group of people who were the most prolific offenders in, in Teesside, the most chaotic drug users for want of, of better words. Post dimorphine they're sat in our clinic reading magazines and books um, you know, using our library. So they've gone from real chaos to real stability in, in a matter of days. Yeah, that's um, pretty impressive. It's, it's phenomenal so, to so see. So in the, and I know it is a really short time scale so far, just a couple of weeks, but are you getting any feedback from people about how they're finding the programme and um, what their thoughts are on it? Yeah, well, they're very, they're very thankful. Um, and some of that, some of the conversations when we've offered the programme to people and they've started has, be, has been quite heartbreaking, really, and heartrending because... Um, people have been desperate, they've, they've cried when we've offered them the opportunity, thinking that I, I, didn't, I didn't know what else to do, my life was going nowhere, I was going to go back to jail because that's all I know to get a rest. Um, so, so being given this life opportunity um, 
uh, as being kind of, they look alive, they look vibrant, they've got big smiles on their faces as they start to settle down. Two of, the, two of the lads that are on the programme were street homeless. We've managed to get them supported accommodation. Um, people are putting weight on. Um, it, it, it's been transformational. It is early days, yeah. um, but it, it, to, see, um, to see the change in people, um, having known these guys for up to 20 years and the struggles that they've gone through, to see the impact of, of dimorphine um, has been amazing. Okay, so, I mean, that sounds fantastic from just a really short space of time to getting that up and running. Why do you think it's taken us so long in the UK to be introducing this? If it's, you know, if it's producing such fantastic results and we know from the riot trials um, that were done down south, it produced amazing results for people who were receiving the treatment. Why do you think that it's taken us so long to look at spreading this more, much more widely across the UK? I think it's, uh, it, it's complex really, but I think um, not wanting to um, take anything away from the recovery movement that we've got in the UK because I do believe it's important that we've got the aspiration of recovery and abstinence for people who require it um, within our treatment systems but I think the focus went far too far towards an abstinence-based approach so uh, you know looking at interventions that were harm reduction focused and um, meant more medicine really were, were not seen as, as viable options, were not things to be considered. I mean, harm reduction is a word that over the last decade you could be vilified for, for using, um, you know, wrongly. Um, and I think we've got to a position now where we recognise that we're, we're all fellows in, in terms of trying to support people on their journeys to um, stability and being the best versions of themselves, whether that's through a harm reduction approach or an abstinence-based approach. But I think that's had a massive impact in terms of um, uh, uh, how we deliver services across the board. I, I, can, I can hear staff that I've worked with kind of really encouraging patients to um, reduce their methadone, kind of supportive and you know, pleased when people are reducing doses of methadone, even though we're seeing that they're increasing benzo use or that there's been alcohol use added to the mix because the focus was get them off methadone, get them out of treatment, and, and I think that's had a massive impact. Yeah, for sure. Just, um, that was making me think about something else as well. Have you had any kind of negative responses to um, your setting up your programme from media or from local people or general population, anybody that yes. you've had negative responses uh, Yes, from? so we've had a, a mixed bag of responses. So, um, you know, in the world of social media, anybody, yeah. keyboard warriors, We've had lots of positive, um, clearly well-informed individuals who have um, seen that this is evidence-based um, and, and kind of backed it as, as members of the public. We've had um, media coverage that in, by, in, by, in large has, has stuck to the facts, but has used extremely kind of provocative um, headlines. So free heroin to heroin users, Cleveland police to pay for free heroin for the most um, difficult drug users and often I think what I've learned is people don't read the information they read the headline and then um, kind of contact you I've had some um, kind of comments about my race um, oh, wow. through the through the media um, we had the Daily Mail go and knock on the door of local residents and kind of inf inflame the situation really to, to kind of say did you know there's a drug haven opening up over the road um, so that didn't help um, we've spoken to local residents and um, you know kind of allayed their fears that this is nothing new it's the same people coming to the same center but just a different uh, treatment program we've had comments in the local and national press about um, people being given cyanide and people being just given one shot and kill them all or lock them up on an island so real inflammation of the stigma around substance use um, has played out really as we've started the programme. Yeah. So just to finish, um, and it's been really interesting hearing about how it's going and I look forward to seeing how it progresses and the results that you get from it. Um, if you had to have a final word for other areas that were considering um, starting a heroin assisted treatment programme, what would be your advice? Yeah, that's a good question. I think for me, um, it's absolutely vital that you do this in partnership. That it's a partnership approach that you get everybody on board. Um, 
and actually you stick to the evidence you know I guess the the thing that's helped me throughout this journey is I know what I'm doing is the right thing so when I've hit barriers when I've hit problems that you think I can't see how I can overcome this problem um, knowing that this is the right thing to do to help save lives and to help make other people's lives better for all of us for as a, as a community and as a society um, keep pushing keep working because it is doable um, we've proven that it's doable on shrinking budgets um, so i think if you've got that desire and that will keep working towards it and i'm confident that you'll get there great so that was danny speaking um there about the heron assisted treatment program that they've just opened up uh, at foundations in millsborough so danny's obviously the clinical part there uh Kirsten, some really interesting issues uh, that he was raising there i thought you know especially about just um the fact that this tried 20 years ago to go and it's been quite a long process to get to the stage where we are it seems like the whole drugs field in both england and scotland is at a very interesting juncture right now with the with especially with this and and all the other kind of innovations that are being sought after yeah i'm so pleased dan has driven that work forward because it's a fantastic service um and really interesting to see obviously uh, unfortunately on podcast you can't see it but it's pictures of the service as well um and how it just looked like a sort of living room environment it was really uh, it was really nice and welcoming and i i'm sure i'm sure people will get a lot out of attending the service it also made me realize that my geography was completely off so i think i said earlier that i went to Bern in switzerland i didn't i, go, I went to basel so <laughs> just, to, just to clarify that our, our <laughs> thousands and thousands of swiss uh, listeners will be up in arms horrified. And and <laughs> adding us on twitter that yeah. it was definitely Sorry. there <laughs> yeah no it was interesting and i it's as uh, Kirsten says, the the atmosphere uh, in the in the service is completely different from what I expected. I mean, I even been familiar with photographs of drug consumption rooms and having visited one. It, it was like a living room. Um, and he described that in his presentation, which will be available on the SDF YouTube for anyone who wants to to go and see Danny's um, presentation. Also, uh, you can also see John Strang and uh, Dr. Tilo Beck's presentations when they came to visit us uh, two years ago, uh, actually three years ago now, 2016, soon to be almost four years ago. Jeez Louise. Uh, So you can see those uh, presentations on our YouTube uh, and also we've got two conversations with videos with um, Professor Sir John Strang and Dr Tilo Beck as well. But yeah, just back to your point there about um, Danny Ahmed's talk and the the feel of the the service as well and they, I remember he described it as a living room approach and that was very much it and, I, and I, it would be really interesting to see the kind of the difference that would make on maybe a person uh, wanting to attend a service wanting to engage with a service um, the level of comfort with with that and then what kind of progress can be achieved from yeah. that so well yeah I mean I think that's a, a feature of what Danny's talked about and certainly what they're proposing in Glasgow is to have some kind of uh, wraparound if you like so it's not just about uh, the, the dispensing and, and the consumption or the self-administration of a drug. It's about people sitting around and having other interventions offered and, uh, in terms of their physical and mental health and just a kind of social situation and so on. So, and I think people will be attracted by that where it's most comfortable and feels most informal. But also, just to clarify, like there is still that kind of clinical element yeah. to the, oh, course, to the yeah, actual yeah. administration. Like people are just sitting around no, on couches. It's, no, it's like, not all injecting, Danny's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. injecting diamorphine. Yeah, it's, it's still got that clinical mm-hmm. element to it, but the, all the surrounding aspects of the service are, are uh, not like that. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But speaking about another person who presented at uh, our conference with Danny was Dr. Carol Hunter, who is the lead pharmacist uh, of the Alcohol and Drug Service for NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde. Uh, she's also been a key member of the development of Glasgow's Heroin Assisted Treatment, or the Enhanced Drug Treatment Service. Uh, Carol was also appointed to the UK's Advisory Council for the Misuse of Drugs in January 2019. And Austin and Kirsten were really fortunate to catch up with her earlier on in the week to talk about the new service, and we can hear about from that now. So thanks for joining us today, Carol. Uh, we're going to talk to you a bit about uh, the heroin assisted treatment service that's due to start very soon in Glasgow. Um, we've already spoken to Danny, so you both spoke at our recent conference on opioid substitution therapy in Edinburgh. Um, so it was just to get a bit more detail from you. So welcome. 
how do you feel about being on our podcast? <laughs> oh, it's a pleasure to be here and thanks for inviting me. <laughs> no, it's yeah, good okay. to have you here. Yeah, so I guess uh, looking back just to the start and how the service came about, um, I was around at the time as well when you were doing the Taking Away the Chaos report and looking specifically at the needs of people who are injecting in public places in Glasgow City Centre. So it'd just be really interesting to hear from you about that report and about how the recommendations came about regarding the heroin-assisted treatment. I think, well, as you know, the report was published, I think, 2016 and all the work was done in 2015. So we're now nearly at the end of... 2019 so it seems to have taken quite a long time to get to here and, and where we are we were in a stage where we're almost ready to open as you know there was a, a huge amount of work around the taking away the chaos looking at the health needs of people who are injecting in public places in Glasgow city centre and I think we did a whole review and we looked at all the options and all the recommendations and we came up with what was the plan for Glasgow was a co-location of a drug consumption room and a heroin-assisted treatment programme. Basically, that would have two separate services but co-located within the one building. Um, shared staff, although there'd be different populations who would go into that. And as you know, uh, there was a lot of legal challenges around that, um, which we did try and overcome in terms of the uh, the drug consumption room. Um, but we, we've more or less hit a barrier with that at the moment and there's no there's no immediate plans to open the drug consumption room. So we were then left with the dilemma, do we go ahead with the heroin-assisted treatment programme on its own or do we wait till we can go ahead with our co-location? Um, but the problems are still there, the HIV outbreak's still there, we have a, a major problem with public injecting in Glasgow city centre, so um, we made the decision to go ahead with the heroin-assisted treatment programme as a single on its own because there's no legal barriers to that. Yeah, and I think it's important to highlight that and, re and remind people of that as well, that this work was prompted by the HIV yes, epidemic, which is so. ongoing, mm -hmm. um, because there's so much discussion now, obviously, about drug-related deaths, and of course we would want these services to support that as well, but the prompt for all this work was the, the HIV. The epidemic. HIV outbreak, but not just the HIV outbreak. I mean, Glasgow's had anthrax, we've had botulism, we've had outbreaks way back of Clostridium novii, and we know that <coughs> within the HIV group... Um, you know, the rate of drug-related drug deaths is particularly high, so there is still yeah. a very pressing need for this service. Yeah, and and when that came out and the, it hit the media about the co-location, the services, the consumption room, the heroin-assisted treatment, there was so much confusion um, in the media and, yeah. you know, people thinking that... Um, I mean, I specifically remember some of the reporting about the consumption room stuff and... Um, it had been reported in the media that people were just going to turn up at this service and be given diamorphine at this service. And yeah, so I think it's so important just to distinguish that the two services are very different, even though they were proposed to be linked in the same service. I think the co-location had huge benefits, so that we could see huge benefits, but you're absolutely right, the confusion was there, the confusion was there in the media and, and amongst some professionals, uh, you know, amongst communities particularly, and, you know, every report I seem to read at that point, I would be quite enraged no, that is not yeah. what we're proposing. Yeah, and you decided to opt for a, a different type of name, so it's the Enhanced Drug Treatment Service. Enhanced. So what was the thinking behind that? Well, first of all, I think it is an enhanced, it's a very highly clinical, specialised service. Um, there's a whole lot of um, other services around the patient that will support the patient. Um, and also heroin-assisted treatment, that was part of the confusion. Um, you know, heroin has... As a street word, we're, we're not supplying a tenor bag of heroin. We're supplying pure pharmaceutical-grade diamorphine. And I think that gives the distinction. Um, and it also highlights that this, this is a clinical service and it's not. it does away with some of the confusion in the public, I think. Um, so we made a decision to go with a, a name that probably more reflected what the service is. The building work has been done and the renovation is within um, another building where we have the Homeless Health Service and the Homeless Addiction Team. Um, so also we didn't want to have any confusion between yeah. the other services from the same site. Yeah. So the hat in hat. Uh, the, yeah, yeah, exactly. It didn't <laughs> yeah. seem to make sense. <laughs> um, 
So anyway, maybe you could take us through some of the challenges that the services faced, just in terms of the pure logistics of it. It's it's been quite a long time in development and a lot of the challenges, as I say, we've no legal challenges on this, but the challenges would be around um, finding a site, um, getting the right staff, um, the prescriber's licence. Um, our prescriber's licence, there's a slight confusion, although the Misuse of Drugs Act is UK-wide and our premises are licensed by the Home Office, the doctors are licensed by the Scottish Government um, and this is the first time that's ever been used as the one part of the Misuse of Drugs Act that has been devolved to Scotland. So that was a challenge because that process has never been used before so we had to identify the right staff and go through all of that. We also had to find a product that we could use. There's, um, there's problems with the UK supply of diamorphine so we plan to um, use a Swiss product. So it's how do you how do you prepare that product? How do you store it? And um, and all of that. So that had to be built into the planning decisions. And will I mention Brexit? Have you got a supply that will <laughs> survive? Well, well, it's coming from Switzerland, which uh, excuse me, I'm not well versed in Brexit. <laughs> as long as we get a direct flight, yes, we're okay. <laughs> we, we have a supply at the moment, and and we're we're. We're not ordering directly, we, we, we're part of the NHS, so we're part of Greater Glasgow and Clyde, so all our, all our supplies are coming through the Pharmacy Distribution Centre, okay. which I think, well, if I could solve Brexit, that would be amazing. <laughs> mm. I mean, we've got drug shortages at the moment before yeah. Brexit, so we just don't know what will happen. And in terms of the preparation of the building, it's a pre-existing building. It's a, yes. So how do you renovate, what do you have to do to renovate it? Um, well, we have a dispensary in there, so obviously we have to uh, a home office license first of all. Um, but we've we have to have uh, injecting booths, um, which were specially designed for our service. Um, so, so all of that is a totally new new service. Um, and also because we're storing the drugs, we have a dispensary and we have extra security, obviously, um, both internal and external. So, in terms of engagement with the treatment, uh -huh. how, do you, how are patients selected for it, or how are patients informed of the possibility of being on treatment? Yeah, I think um, the intention is to recruit through the homeless addiction team, um, but we've also, the ADP have invested uh, significant amounts of money in an outreach team, so we're hoping that the outreach team will be part of the being able to recruit people. Um, in the long term, it's not easy because somebody's going to have to attend, you know, twice a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So it won't be for everyone. Um, so the plan is that, that we will recruit using the, both the homeless addiction team and, and the outreach services. And could you share the criteria that people would meet or... Essentially, we're not trying to exclude anyone, but it's people who haven't benefited from existing treatments, from existing oral treatments. Um, obviously, the origin we've already discussed was the HIV outbreak, so that would be a priority group for us. Um, I don't think we'll be short of people. I think that's a good way to put it as well, about um, people not having had benefit from other treatments. Um, or the, um, the treatments prior that they've tried previously have failed them, basically. Because a lot of the time when I hear people talking yes. about um, the criteria for people getting into this, they talk about people failing on treatment. And I, I think that's, you know, it's, it's wrong right. to and describe it, it, like it that. It shouldn't be a failure, you know. I've got high blood pressure. The first tablet didn't work for me, so I had an alternative. And this is about having a third option, yeah. which actually is not... In terms of, you know, medical terms and in treatment terms, you would have lots of antibiotic options. So because the first treatment, the second treatment, second option didn't work, this is about having a third level option. And we don't plan um, to be, to exclude people who are using alcohol or benzos or cocaine. Um, you know, these we don't have exclusion criteria. This is very much about the right individual and someone who can benefit from it. Yeah. And aside from the actual medication itself, what other kind of supports are going to be there for people and will they have access to uh, like key workers and yes. all that stuff? Yes, they'll have a key worker and they'll have contact, they'll have quite intense contact with a nurse at least twice every single day uh, and we're going to encourage um, 
inreach from other services as well, so that the um, so that people will be supported. So it'll be quite an intensive support service around them. Yeah. What about things like um, wound care and yes. all that stuff? Well, will that be done part, on site? Yeah. Part of the um, part of the actual room, uh, and I know Kirsten, you've you've been yeah. to see the, the the site that we have. We do have a medical room. Yeah. So if someone needs more, in, you know, an intense a, a consultation or something in private or wounds, we can do that. And our nurses are quite experienced nurses who, who have a background in addictions and a background in working with people who are homeless. Yeah. And the the HIV treatment and stuff is all going to be, all those treatments are going to be provided the plan, from the service the plan as well. Glasgow quite uniquely developed a system where they, um, they've managed to keep people in, in antiretroviral treatment um, what they've done is link it to their existing opiate substitute therapy. Um, so this is opiate substitute therapy, so we want to link, keep that link there. Um, so instead of going to the community pharmacy and get methadone or buprenorphine and their antiretrovirals, we'll link that to the, their OST, and that is the one thing that we will definitely be supplying as, as part on a daily basis. And then will people have access to, like, will the in-reach services, will they be, like, as part of the homeless addiction to like how will it work in practice will people you know just go into a different part of the building well, or we're planning to use part of the after the the waiting room and the aftercare and we've also got the researcher who'll be in um talking to people and patients and staff yeah because there's a big evaluation yes. um process as part of this so is it being described as a pilot then it is a pilot. It's yeah. a pilot that's for funded for three years. three years. It's a three-year pilot. Yeah, so the evaluation, what specifically are they going to be looking at? The evaluation that? will be looking at um, the outcomes and be looking at staff and patients and also be cost-effectiveness. Okay. Yeah. So can you take us, take us through the journey of somebody who's entering the service and how that process works. If you could like well, visualise the, yeah. somebody walking through the service. Walking through the service. As in, once they've been recruited, yeah. actively you know, yeah. recruited and offered this as an option for them and agreed that that's something that they would be able to do, um, they would meet with our consultant who's um, Charlie McMahon, who's a very experienced uh, prescriber. And... Uh, he would decide on prescribing. So once once that's all done, um, on a daily basis, they come through the waiting area and it's all electronic and, you know, everything's uh, recorded. Uh, and they'd have a pre-assessment with the nurse, which, will, you know, that's after about 15 minutes. And that's just to make sure that they are... Um, that they're, they're OK to receive their dose that day. And then they'd be escorted through with a nurse to the injecting booth where she'll discuss with them a whole range of things, but including uh, the injecting site and the most appropriate site and what size of needle they're going to use. Um, and that will all be agreed. Um, we have a vein finder if there's any problems with finding veins, which is a, quite an impressive uh, piece of equipment. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is a piece of equipment, not a, a human. So, no, no, <laughs> yeah, so it is actually yeah, yeah, a, yeah, a device absolutely. that can find um, So at that point, um, they would then come to the dispensary hatch and they'd receive their dose. Um, from my point of view, the pharmacists will be involved in the, the early um, the meetings in the morning where we'll know which patients are coming in. So all the doses will be prepared in advance and brought up to room temperature so they'll come out of the fridge uh, and they'll be ready for the patient at that point and they'll sign uh, for the handover and that goes directly to the patient so that and then the injection is supervised by the nurse um, we have full resuscitation you know not full but we have uh, oxygen and defibrillators naloxone available um, so after that they then go into the aftercare area um, where there's a minimum of 20 minutes a uh, pre-post-injection assessment and again that would be done with a nurse there. Um, but we're hoping to have, you know, hot drinks and some food and make that a bit more of a, a sort of friendly environment. Will we supply and take home naloxone from the service? Yes, yes. take home naloxone. Yes, <laughs> take home naloxone is there and ready. Yeah, ready. Yeah, so at the end of the 20 minutes they then get their evening dose, which at the moment will be methadone. Okay. Um, so they'll come back and they'll be given their evening dose. Given it as in to take away? No, as in All supervised. Right, okay. 
Okay. Yeah. And is there the option to take it away or would it always be supervised? There's, it's supervised initially, but right. then I think that's something that could yeah. be discussed. You know, uh, the first week it'll all be supervised anyway. Yeah. yeah. And I think you've got to remember that a lot of patients, you know, take home, they might not have anywhere to store it anyway. So. And although the services you see is every day of the year and yeah. seven days a week and all that, it's, it's a nine-to-five service? Or it's, it's a, a nine-to-five, seven yeah, days, yeah. 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 Okay, so the, that's it's overnight? Yeah, there's an injecting session in the morning and an injecting session in the afternoon, so they're two-hour sessions. Yeah. Okay, and the other thing I was going to ask you about, I suppose in terms of the evaluation you've been talking about, but just more generally, what outcomes are you looking for, both for the individual and the impact, the overall impact of the yeah, service? Yeah, I think we're looking at for, basically, goes back to the report, it's taking away the chaos, it's stabilisation. Um, we'll be looking at uh, reducing um, street injecting of illicit drugs. Um, so that's, an, that's actually a challenge that we didn't mention, that we have to have a urine test that can distinguish between street heroin and prescribed diamorphine. So we would hope to see a reduction in that, reduction in uh, you know, a whole lot of other factors, inc including you know, um, criminal offences, um, getting people into HIV treatment. So all, all of the health factors would be measured. So we're, the outcome would be an improvement in these factors. Yeah. Because I know in, in England, because the way it's funded, the, the uh, project in, in Middlesbrough's got a big focus on crime reduction yeah. uh, as part of the agenda. But So is there a, there's wider stuff? I think the crime reduction yeah. for us is not a priority. Yeah. It's a, you know, a beneficial side effect, but it's not the prime reason for doing it. It's, it's the health benefits that we're looking for. Yeah, I'm just wondering, um, has there been any sort of backlash isn't the word that I really mean but like kind of challenges from community or um, the wider kind of public perception about the service? I, th I think there has been um, and a lot of the work has, uh, has been around a communication with local groups um, we've had local councillors come to visit and we've offered site visits to uh, communities, um, community groups and I think a lot of that is about debunking the myths that are there. This is not a service that is open access, that's going to have hundreds of people. Um, so it's about reassuring people of the way that it's organised um, and that it is a secure service. Um, so yeah, I think there was a lot of backlash, but a lot of that was related to the fact that it wasn't reported well in the beginning. Yeah, and, mm. and again goes back to that misunderstanding. Yes, of, yeah, of, of exactly what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. It is a clinical service and it really... In reality, it's no different from, apart from the, the supervised aspect of it, it's no different from prescribing any other OST. And, you know, other countries who have, you know, long-standing heroin-assisted treatment programmes, like in Switzerland, have obviously seen huge beneficial impacts to people who use the service. And there's no reason to suggest that wouldn't be the same for people in Glasgow who are, who are getting access to this service. You're right. As well. we're, we're talking about this as though it's new and unique. It's new and unique for us, but it's not for the rest of Europe. So we've got a lot to learn from, from there. And, and it's how do we implement that and how do people in Glasgow city centre who desperately need this, how do we make that available? And hopefully we'll see that very soon. So that was Carol Hunter there, uh, who's the lead pharmacist of uh, NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde, uh, talking to you guys earlier just before the service started. Now you guys have actually been very fortunate uh, to head down and check out the service before it opened. So what were your kind of impressions of it? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, this was a kind of tour, uh, and actually, uh, as Carol described it, it's just it's a few rooms. It's a reception area, uh, the injecting. Uh, place, uh, the booths that she described, and a kind of seating area, uh, and they also have a, a treatment room which people can use obviously if there's some treatment intervention needed. Um, and it's a, it's a very clinical space, uh, and it's a lot of investment in it, it's nice, it's clean and light, um, uh, and it's, I suppose it's what you would want uh, or expect in a, in, a, in a NHS premises, and it has that feel about it. And the fact that it's based at Hunter Street, which is, which was already the homeless, uh, 
homeless homeless eviction team and the homeless it. health services. Right. Yeah. So so produ- presumably uh, quite a large uh, number of the population that's going to be using the service might already be aware of the um, of of all those yeah, services yeah. already. So actually, it might be integrated quite seamlessly. Yeah. I mean, in that community, that service will be known, and many people will use it currently or have used it in the past. Uh, you know, for for other health related stuff, there's a, a GP service down there and so on. Um, so yeah, so it's it's not strange to people, and you know the neighbourhood uh, has accommodated that population, so it doesn't really matter that they're receiving this other uh, support other, other than anything else. Mm-hmm. For me, it was quite nice to see it all uh, finalised and all uh, you know the, the kind of finished product after a couple of years of discussion. So I'd been a member of the what was intended to be the short life working group. Uh, looking at this proposal um, and its introduction as well as the, the safer injecting facility, um, which has obviously uh, not been introduced. But the, with a heroin-assisted treatment service, I've been involved in the discussions on it for a long time and to see it all come together was really nice. And I think just reflecting on what both Danny and Carol have said, they've both mentioned about this kind of taking away the chaos element and I just think that's an important thing to be mindful of with this type of service. So when people um, have are, are using heroin, uh, street heroin, it's like almost like a full-time job for people sometimes. So this having to go and source your money to maybe have to commit crime to get your money, to then source your drugs, to then get your equipment and use your drugs. And it takes up people's entire lives, all of that. Uh, drug use part of it so when all of that is removed by prescribing somebody's the dimorphine people have often got a lot of time on their hands so it's just about making sure that folk are supported with um, you know what to what to now do that time because people can end up feeling quite isolated as well so it's so important that those services have that wraparound element to it and that whole social thing of hanging about a group of people and having those relationships and all the rest of it once once you take that away or or the full engagement with that that away there is it's a big loss for people and it's it's like a bereavement or a big change in your life people changing job or moving house or whatever it's it, it will be big for people and Carol mentioned that there's going to be no exclusion criteria uh, for people that are going to be accessing the service. How important is that um, for people who are going to be going to be accessing it? Well, it's so important because, you know, diamorphine is going to uh, be in place of people's heroin use. But as we know, in Scotland and Glasgow, uh, people are using multiple substances. So it's not going to solve all of people's problems, but that people getting people engaged in a service it's crucial. I mean, as soon as you start putting up barriers for being able to access that type of service, you're going to lose people straight away and some of the people that are at the most high risk. So it is crucial that, I know it's a high threshold service, but it has to have you know, low barriers to being able yeah. to connect with people. Now, I think the one question that all our listeners are going to be wanting to know is, how is the vein finder and what is it like? Because it just seems it seems That's like clearly sci-fi. a question you want to know. Well, no, 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 everybody. I'm sure everybody's going to be annoying as well. Yeah, well, I, 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 well, appeal to certain people, I suppose, because it's like something from some sort of space technology. But I saw it briefly, and basically, it's just a light. It appears to be just a green light that they shine in your arm or whatever, and you can see all of your veins. Uh, and I mean, what they report more importantly than uh, trying it out myself is that people who really have problems with uh, with venous access are actually it's benefiting them, and so there's less injury, and they can find, find pains quickly. Um, and, and people have actually been quite encouraged because they, they fear not having access, and therefore not being able to inject. Um, and so it, it's, it's in terms of people's uh, stress around all of their, their health and so on, has reduced that and improved the injecting practice, and it opens up a conversation about that. Yeah, so it just looks like a wand that you would hover above the person's arm. Oh wow, a um, wand, now you're yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's all Harry Potter-esque. Uh, a wand that you would hover over the arm and you can see clearly the, the, the veins are that are accessible there. So, But yeah, because you don't want people having to you know, attempt to get multiple veins if there's something that can there to help. Or people injecting, groin injecting when that isn't necessary, yeah. uh, or for, not necessary for that reason at least. So you can open up a conversation about that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I would say is that it's a new service and 
it was quite obvious in visiting that, that as with Carol, but the more frontline staff, the, the person that's working in reception and the manager and so on, are enthusiastic and they're, they're excited about it. And that will make a big difference because people are used to going into services that they themselves have been in for long periods of time and staff under stress and having very long time to spend spend with you and having big caseloads and so on, it'll be quite a different environment uh, and hopefully the rest of this, our services can learn from from that change in just the spirit and the atmosphere about a place. Yeah, and I, I honestly can't wait to hear about the positive impact that it has on people's lives from attending this service because it'll be massive, um, so that'll be really nice to hear about. Excellent. Well, we'll see... Uh, We'll keep an eye on the service, see how it goes on. Hopefully it makes uh, as good an impact as, uh, as we all hope it will do. So until next time, we'll leave it there. So uh, thanks and enjoy your holidays if you've been fortunate enough to have them. Uh, we'll be back in, a, in the new year with some more topics to keep you informed. In the meantime, please hit subscribe, share the podcast and give us a five-star rating so that we can raise awareness of the podcast further. Um, as I mentioned earlier, all the uh, presentations for Professor Sir John Strang, Danny Ahmed, Dr. Carol Hunter and Dr. Tilo Beck are available on our SDF YouTube, so get on there uh, if you want to find out a little bit more information. So, until next time, from all of us, goodbye. And stay safe over the festive period. <laughs>